That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by SubChina, the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquis of Professor Cornell's Business School, and today we're featuring a recording of a live CEO webinar that took place on July 7th with Jay Foreman, the founder and CEO of Basic Fun Toys, and Craig Allen, the president of the U.S.-China Business Council. It was a true joy to talk to Jay and Craig about Basic Fund's history and trends in companies manufacturing products in China more generally. While you may not have heard of Basic Fund, you've certainly heard of many of the brands they produce, including Uncle Milton, Play Hut, Tonka Trucks, Care Bears, Lincoln Logs, and many more. Hearing about all their products was a real trip down memory lane for me. Jay has taken over 100 trips to visit his factory partners in China over the last 30 years, and there are a number of key learnings I took from his experience. One is the flexibility and creativity of Chinese manufacturing. While there's a lot of attention to rising labor costs in China and companies moving production to places like Vietnam and Bangladesh, Jay discusses how the innovation of his Chinese partners and integrated supply chain in southern China has kept Chinese production very competitive cost-wise. Also reflecting the adaptability of Chinese manufacturing, Jay discusses how the industry has changed over time. In the late 1980s and 1990s, he was mainly dealing with government-owned factories in northern China and in the Shanghai area through trading companies. This evolved to be much more concentrated in southern China, and many of the companies are now from Hong Kong and Taiwan. Finally, one point that really resonated with my experience visiting a number of factories in the past decade is how factories and working conditions in China have improved over time. The factories Jay now uses are typically situated on larger campuses that include things like dormitories and different food and entertainment options. In addition to Jay's experience, the episode also features a number of more general insights about manufacturing in China from Ambassador Craig Allen's decades of experience as a U.S. commercial service officer. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome, Jay and Craig. I'm so happy to have both of you here on the show today. 
Thank you, Chris. Great to be with you. To get started, let's actually first jump into one significant issue in the current period and how COVID has led to a global shipping crisis, which has a big effect on trade with China. Jay, how has this affected Basic Fund, particularly over the last 18 months? Uh, It's been uh, pretty incredible and really unprecedented in my over 30 years of traveling to China, you know, having a situation where business is, in a sense, so good, almost too good that we can't get enough space on enough containers and enough space on container ships to bring in all the merchandise that the consumer and the retailers are looking for. Uh, you know, we've had times over the years where there've been a port strike that slowed things down. Uh, you know, obviously with, with, uh, COVID, we had a bit of a shutdown, a lockdown of the factories in China for a while, but really, for an extended period of time, which has really been the last few months and it's going to continue on probably through the end of this year, maybe even into next year, we have this real shortage of uh, shipping uh, to bring the merchandise from China around the world, literally. And and not only from China, but from the U.S. Uh, to other ports around the world and everywhere where things are, are bought and sold and made and exported and imported, it's really... Uh, absolutely unprecedented times right now. Interesting. And how have you been dealing with this issue? Have you been delaying your own deliveries? Hopefully it'll be resolved by the holidays. I'm sure that must be the most important season for you. Sure. Or there'll be a lot of disappointed kids for Christmas. Uh, Well, and we do anticipate some shortages of toys and other products, you know, uh, clothing and a lot of other things that are imported from from, uh, overseas in particular. Um, so what we're doing is part of what we, we've done is we've recognized this problem earlier and a bit earlier in the year. So we've tried to accelerate production, speed up production and start to ship early, knowing that things are going to, you know, continue to, you know, bog up, bottle up and clog up along the way so that hopefully we're just spreading out the shipping over a longer period of time. And then of course our, our uh, logistics folks and my COO is up literally, you know, till midnight every night negotiating with uh, freight brokers and freight forwarders and steamship lines and the factories and even with our customers because a lot of the merchandise that we manufacture, we our customers actually take delivery in China, either at the back door of the factory or at the port. So I'm not only competing with everybody else who's, you know, looking to source containers and, and space on freight lines, but even my customers, because they've only got a certain amount of container space, so they've got to decide whose goods they want to pick up. So we're also on the phone with our customers like Walmart and Target and Costco and Walgreens, asking them, please send, you know, send pickup notices to our factory. Uh, so, you know, a lot of it is who's got the hotter product, who's got the product that's more in need. And of course, what this is also doing is it's it's really uh, exploding the cost of freight exponentially, like double, triple, sometimes even quadruple the cost of a container, which is typically somewhere between $2,500 and $4,000 a container um, to the United States. We're seeing that now $8,000, $12,000, even $15,000, which is just an unprecedented and absolutely hit to the bottom line. So it's really you know, been tale of two worlds, good times and bad times all at the same time. Demand is so hot and so up that it's causing problems and strains in in lots of unexpected areas. 
interesting to hear the nuances of how you're dealing with that issue. Thanks so much for sharing that. Uh, Craig, how about the U.S. CBC members more generally in other shipping to and from China? Uh, what are you hearing on this issue? Well, I, I think that everyone is having problems with supply chain. So Jay is fortunate that there's production and enough manufacturing capacity in China and elsewhere to meet demand, and the problem is shipping. Others have more complex problems in that supply chains are highly constricted and costs are going up very rapidly across the supply chain. And I think importers of steel, uh, lumber, and many other commodities, as well as finished products, are undergoing unprecedented circumstances. I think those who use semiconductors, particularly in the automotive industry, deserve our special consideration because even the lack of perhaps the smallest component in a product can halt production on the lines. And, and that's a serious thing with uh, severe consequences. And as this shortage and this disequilibrium goes on, we're finding it uh, yet more difficult to get fully out of it. My understanding is that ships are returning to Shenzhen or Shanghai as quickly as possible, even without containers on them, empty containers on them. And thus con the container shortage is getting worse. So finding that equilibrium space is probably going to take some time. And companies across supply chains are affected by this problem that Jay has articulated in the toy industry. And if I, and if I could just jump in, you know, and we in the United States are really lucky because we're on a very direct route, especially the West Coast from China. Of course, it's a long way across the Pacific Ocean, but it's a straight line. And we have generally very efficient turnaround of, of the ships. Everything comes in full. Everything can get unloaded in, in LA or Seattle or different, different ports. Other countries around the world are really in a bind because they're not as efficient. They're harder to get to. And so when the supply of ships is limited, the steamship companies want to be on the most efficient routes, not just where they can get the most money, but where they can turn their ships around quickest. So, for example, we're having a heck of a time getting containers to go from China to Canada right now. And I can only imagine if you've got containers you want to pick up in Chile or Argentina or, you know, Italy – it's even, you know, way more difficult than, than the U.S. So we're, we're sort of luckiest because of how big and efficient our market is. A lot of countries around the world or, or countries that are importing to the United States, not China, you know, you're getting, you know, you know, roof tiles from Colombia and, and, and fancy food from Italy. It's, it's tough to get in. So it's, it is, a, a, as Craig mentioned, it's a global problem. It's affecting everybody. Uh, but certainly the two biggest markets in the world, China and the U.S., are at the top of the food chain on it, for better or worse. Yeah, really interesting. And I mean, it, you know, we've talked before, I think, on some of these programs with, with Craig and the other USCBC members about like the challenges of this interconnected global supply chains that have been created. And it's one, you know, it's great that we're able to get, you know, inexpensive products uh, relatively quickly. But, you know, when they're, you know, things like the chips or this, uh, a chips issue or this slowdown in freight. I mean, really, you can see how it reverberates through the, through the system. So very interesting. Um, you know, I'd love to actually back up a little bit to a time when things were a little bit more simple. Uh, I think, Jay, you know, the first time 
you went to China was, you know, 1989, 1990, uh, started your production there. Can you give us a little background of, you know, Basic Fun and how you got so involved in producing your products in China? Sure. I mean, you know, my career uh, traveling to China, you know, starts well before founding this this company that I have now. And it was just really started as my first one of my first jobs, early jobs out of college, sourcing and designing. And I first started in Korea, but then very quickly moved over to China. And when I went to China for the first time in 1989, actually, a lot of U.S. Uh, folks involved in manufacturing in, in China were in South China. But my first experiences were all up in Shanghai. Uh, so going into Shanghai in the late 80s and early 90s, when that part of the country was still uh all under government control. There was no free enterprise there. So all the businesses were owned by the government and you were dealing basically between government-owned trading companies who acted as your middleman and the factories themselves. So, and and of course, you know, and you can't even imagine what the old Shanghai airport, you know, looked like compared to the new Shanghai airport and what the road in from the Shanghai airport, you know, was where we were dodging bicycles on the highway you know, back in 89 with our minivan as we were coming from the, 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 the airport into town. It was really an incredible period of time to, to be in China and working with the factories. And, you know, it, it was also a time to really see China grow and, and, and develop and expand from, you know, having the workers in the factories, which were all, even in Shanghai, migrant workers, many of them, and the conditions in the factories to see where they've progressed to at this point. But it was really a, ve- a very interesting time. There, there, uh, those of you go back way back, you remember you couldn't use U.S. dollars there. There were two currencies. If you're a foreigner, you use FEC, foreign exchange currency. And then you had the, 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 the renminbi. And so everything was a little complicated. Everything went through channels. You needed two chops for every single transaction and everything you wanted to do. But it was a really a, a, a fabulous and amazing time to really see China and be doing business in China. And it was just a wonderful experience for me. I spent a lot of time there in the early days. That's interesting. I didn't, you know, you hear a lot about the factories in China, you know, entrepreneurs from Hong Kong or Taiwan or even, you know, mainland Chinese themselves. But you're saying that at that time, factories were, they were government-owned toy factories that you were contracting with. Yes. Yeah, there were government-owned toy factories, and and our toy factories were right next to blue jean factories. And they, you know, I remember them touring me on the blue jean factory and showing me, and I really actually learned how they made stonewashed jeans. And I didn't realize they actually threw the jeans in a big tumbler and threw stones in the tumbler, and that's how they distressed the jeans. Uh, and they're really doing that. And and really, you know, like many industries in China, if they they weren't doing it, they figured out how to do it. And they figured it out, you know, pretty, pretty well. And, uh, you know, they had guys there who even some older guys, like our sort of fixer, the guy who worked for our company, he was a retiree. He was Mr. Ma. He was 65 years old. So he's at forced retirement, but he started the toy business in China, you know, after World War II. So he was our guide through China and working with China. And he helped a lot of these factories get set up, set the production lines up. And all that. So, yeah, they're very industrious. So it wasn't, a, you know, a bunch of foreign businessmen setting up their factories, certainly not in, in, in Shanghai at, at the time and not in light industrial. Um, 
it was a, it was a really amazing time. And then, of course, as China opened up and as the government decided to divest of, of a lot of the government owned industries, light industrials were some of the first ones they relinquished. And that whole process was really interesting as they were you know, getting out of making toys and blue jeans and all those kind of things. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, Craig, I'm wondering, given given your sort of longstanding work in China commercial relations, if you could provide a little bit further background on that about this transition, particularly, you know, around the light industrial, how that actually ended up, they, the government spun that off, essentially. So at that time, there was a Ministry of Light Industry, and the Ministry of Light Industry tried to or pretended to control a small industrial manufacturing. And indeed, in the beginning of the reform era, they were the first ones to be abolished. And that was really the start of the economic transformation that we have seen in China. And that happened concurrently with the opening of China to foreign investment. And so concurrently, while the Chinese, uh, perhaps pre-49 industrialists were getting going, at the same time, investors from Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Korea were getting established mostly in the South, but in many of the industries, the light industries, that were becoming too expensive for Taiwan, Korea, and Hong Kong. And so looking, just taking the factory uh, out of Hong Kong and moving it over to Shenzhen uh, was a very uh, natural process. And that began the economic transformation and the industrial transformation that we see today. And it was that combination, in my view anyway, of the catalyst of foreign, mostly Asian, investment in light industry with uh, native Chinese entrepreneurialism, which was uh, just dynamite and really changed the uh, overall global industrial structure in a, in a profound manner. And that has had a massive impact uh, also, of course, on U.S. Uh, consumption and the ability to produce at scale for a global economy. I think that that's a central part of that. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, one more question, Jay, about sort of this older period, and particularly as it contrasts with, with the recent one. So, you know, as Craig mentioned, this the Light Industry Bureau ended up divesting itself in some ways of many of these, you know, toy factories, other, uh, you know, sort of other type type of uh, light industry factories. But I, it's not like they closed them down. They actually, I think, either, you know, sold them to the town or sold them to the managers or, a, you know, a variety of other potential folks. And I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience with that transition and then how maybe those like entrepreneurs or managers contrast with people that you're doing work with now, presumably in southern China? Yeah, so that that's, you know, was a really interesting process of that divestation from the government. And as you said, it, it was a mix. Sometimes the local town or the, the, the local area inherited and they found someone to lease the factory or take over the factory. Sometimes they just let the manager continue. The biggest the biggest, the most important thing at that time, and probably still even at this time, is they didn't want a disruption with the workforce. So the goal was, can we divest of these businesses without upsetting the whole workforce there, without people not getting paid, without with there being an interruption when people are in the middle of their, 
you know, sort of work migration period and all of a sudden there's a whole town or a whole area where everybody's unemployed and the people have nowhere to go. So they were most really important. It was important to them to make sure whatever transition they did, the people who were taking over the factories became responsible for the workers, their social security, their, their pay and, 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 and all that. So it was a whole different combination. But, you know, for me in particular, you know, one of the big factories that we were working with in, in Dashu, South China was in Guangzhou. Uh, the managers took over the factory and they were able to get a lease from the government. They were actually, you know, China's been very good. And, you know, one of the biggest reasons for the, for the growth in the building is that, that the government helped support. So they, they were, uh, you know, loans and price supplements and, you know, all kinds of things that made it very easy for entrepreneurs to take over businesses and to keep them going. So what they needed from us was a promise from us that we would keep giving them business. And in exchange for that, obviously, you know, they gave us reliable supply and quantity, but they also gave us phenomenal pricing. And, and, you know, unlike other industries, you know, uh, solar panels or cars or car parts or anything, there really wasn't much of a toy business, manufacturing business left in the United States. In fact, when I started in the toy business in 86, I worked in a toy factory in Brooklyn, New York. We made the toys in Brooklyn, New York. And by the early 90s, maybe 1992, 1994, I mean, almost nobody was making toys in the United States, a handful of companies. So it wasn't like they were taking jobs from Americans. It was just, you know, it wasn't economical anymore to make toys in the United States anyway. It didn't matter where else you made them. Um, but, but what made it so perfect in China was that they were, the price of the toys were unbelievable. It was so inexpensive and so economical and, and really as much as anything, so easy to work with. I, I, I can just tell you personally, that I've been doing business in China for 35 years with independent owners of factories. I, I have never been cheated once. I have never had anybody, you know, kind of uh, double deal me in any way. It's been, it's been really a, a win-win relationship, at least from mine, because the people there, are, they're just serious. They just want to make money, to be successful, to prosper, and they can do it the old-fashioned way, by working hard and just doing what, what they're doing. And I'm not trying to blow smoke. It, it, it Really, it's my experience. Um, and that all started with this transition. And then, you know, it's always also a little bit interesting because we have some factories in the South that are controlled by and owned by Hong Kong, China, you know, uh, Cantonese, Hong Kong Chinese, and up in the North by Koreans, Koreans who come over Tianjin, Qingdao, because it's so close. And then what, what we lovingly call the China, China makers and China, China makers are Chinese people that own Chinese factories. And it, it definitely took some time for, for us to get on the same wavelength with, as we, as we did with our Korean and our Hong Kong China vendors who've been doing it for a long time and really understood how business was done in the U.S. But now it's, it's kind of seamless and it, it's really, you can't really tell the difference. The, the one big difference I would say is that in particular, the Hong Kong makers who own toy factories now are second, third generation. Um, the main source of income from them is real estate investment. And the toys is really like their good luck business, their legacy business. And they don't give it up because they've got a lot of people that have worked for them for a very long time. And they just, they, they feel it's lucky. They would never give that up. China, 
while the toy businesses might be their first businesses, they don't have that same loyalty. They're very dynamic entrepreneurial people. You, we, we might have a, a factory owner that owns a toy factory. He also owns an animation studio. He owns an e-bike company. He obviously is in real estate. Um, so they're really dynamic and you have to kind of stay close to them because you, we don't want them to lose interest in the toy business because all their other businesses are so successful. Um, so it's really been a, a, a very interesting time over the last, you know, couple of decades for sure. Yeah. Let me, um, we, we have a question that came in in the chat, uh, which I'm going to ask. Uh, I, w- when I do that, I'd like to tell people this is the last question from the chat that I, that I will actually relay. If you could please put them in the Q and A function, because I, that way they're just one place that I have to have to have to watch. Uh, but Craig, I'd like to actually, uh, ask this of you, uh, uh, it's a little sort of more contextual background. You know, one of the things that Jay mentioned is that there was a lot of government support for through this transition. I think, you know, obviously wanting to keep people employed is, is you know, job number one, I think, of, of local governments and uh, and, and uh, the central government as well. Uh, and the question asks, you know, this government support for small businesses, you know, how much, how important was that for the great prices or potentially was it things like the low labor rate or, you know, a variety of other factors that you could imagine it being? So it's a really interesting and complex question because the government interface uh, with business is so dynamic and all, all, all pervasive. Um, and uh, so let's start with uh, the uh, inputs of production, uh, the factors of production, land. Um, all land is owned by the government, and therefore local governments can allocate land uh, for use in a manner that uh, benefits uh, uh, their communities. And uh, so that may very well uh, include a free use of land, and perhaps I'll throw in the roads and the plumbing and the electricity as well, if uh, that is uh, helpful. But it doesn't, uh, you know, the factors of production are complex. Uh, uh, electri- the cost of electricity for the factory uh, and uh, the labor regulations associated with the factory are also important. How tightly will labor uh, uh, restrictions be, uh, or labor laws be implemented uh, is a factor of uh, production. And um, of course, all financial institutions or all major financial institutions are owned by the government. Uh, and uh, access to loans is very, very complex problem for Chinese entrepreneurs that don't have good relations with the government. Can they get capital? And what is the price of that capital? Uh, the government uh, SOE banks largely determine that. And uh, of course, the closer you are to the government, probably the better off uh, you'll be. Although I think that Jay's um, uh, uh, fundamental observation there is correct, that uh, if uh, your contributions to employment in particular and social stability are large, uh, then the government is likely to help you out uh, with those uh, uh, the cost of land. And uh, that could be seen 
uh, as a subsidy of, of sorts, but it's not a WTO enforceable subsidy. It creates, it's a very gray area in international commerce. And I'm afraid that uh, China specializes in those gray areas. Right. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I'd like to yes, follow up also, Jay, with a little bit more about the partners. I mean, you mentioned, you know, just that, that you've had these fantastic partners over all the years. Uh, you know, one in that you haven't been cheated and, and, you know, been treated very fairly. You know, one issue that you frequently hear of with, with factories in China is around intellectual property protection. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit, I mean, given, I mean, I, you can see behind you all the, all the different products. I mean, you, I mean, have right. a huge IP exposure in, in some ways, and, I, and maybe those products are not as complicated to make as an iPhone, for instance. Uh, so I was, I was wondering, how do you work with your factories on IP issues, both for your own products, but then also I know that you do some manufacturing for Disney and other, you know, sort of large sure. um, conglomerates. Yes. Well, you know, IP obviously is a huge issue across the board. We're into sort of less sophisticated ends of the IP, more sort of visual as opposed to technological or intellectual, you know, IP as it relates to things in computers and cell phones and things like that. Um, but um, for us, first of all, the, the better relationship you have with your factory, most likely they're not going to knock you off in a sense. You might lose a few boxes out the back door or, you know, disappear off the back of a truck and they'll find their way into the market. Of course, 25 years ago, there was no internet marketplace. So you really had to wander down a side street somewhere in Hong Kong or, or in Chinatown in New York City. And you, you might turn up and you say, well, wait a minute. How did that get there? You know, I didn't sell to this guy. Um, now, Everybody around the world gets a carton of something and they put it online on Amazon or eBay or some site. So now, so now it kind of amplifies things a little bit uh, in a good way and a bad way. Um, so first is have good relationships with your factories. If you're cheap, if you're chasing only the cheapest price, you might end up with some factories that you don't know well enough and aren't really protecting you. Uh, that's the key. Secondarily is there's sort of the leakage into the China market and the leakage into the international market. The leakage into the China market is a little bit tougher to, to, to monitor. Um, it, it goes and disappears and we're not all over China, you know, protecting ourselves. The leakage into international markets is a little bit easier because we can really patrol things at the borders. Um, so, you know, typically what I say for us is we don't see a lot of knockoffs. If we get a really hot, hot product that's easy to manufacture, you know, people would talk about back in the day, Beanie Babies or something like that. It's pretty easy to knock that off. Um, then then you have to worry about it a little bit. You have to engage sort of an army of, you know, marshals and lawyers kind of checking and stopping things at the border. Um, so it hasn't been in our industry a huge problem. Actually, if, if, if somebody was to ask me what frustrates you most about doing business with China or in China, it's the complications of selling our products into China, which is really the most complicated and difficult. In fact, I have situations where I manufacture some merchandise in a completely 360, you know, one and done in a box, master cart and ready to ship. And I can ship it out of the province from one province to another province because the factory doesn't have a triple C certification, you know, a certain 
level of certifications that allows the parts to be exported around China. And so that's frustrating. Uh, tariffs and duties are frustrating. The fact that China hasn't yet really developed as sophisticated a network of national department store chains so that I can have one central buying office. Really, you know, Baidu and, and Alibaba and, and the Tencent and those kind of things. I don't know if I'm getting them all right. They're the national pan-Chinese retailer. Individual stores, we don't have a Walmart that you've got 200 of them in every single province of China. So that's all been a little bit uh, challenging, but no more or less challenging than it is trying to get things into Japan or some other country. So it's not overly unique. We just happen to to get frustrated because our market is the easiest for anybody to enter globally around the world, where most other markets are, are kind of challenging and China is no exception. It's challenging even the products we manufacture in China to distribute them in China. But but as far as making stuff and even protecting stuff for us, it's, it hasn't been that much of a challenge. Interesting. This this point of actually, you know, everything entirely made in China, then difficulty, you know, actually distributing it in China is something that I, you know, have not heard a lot about. So that's, that's really interesting to hear. You know, Craig, I'd love to hear as well from from your perspective and the perspective of the USCBC members, you know, what sort of things they're doing both on this IP protection issue and then also, you know, if they're trying to actually get their products sold within China, you know, what sort of channels can they uh, work through to do that? Right. Uh, both are interesting questions. Let's break it down. On the IP side, I would note that uh, intellectual property was one of the big wins in the phase one negotiations that were completed about a year and a half ago. And indeed, what we're seeing is a steady decline in complaints about standard intellectual property rights violations in China, what I would call normal intellectual property rights violations. And I guess by that, I would, I would define that by patent, trademark, and copyright. And uh, but certainly patent is the best. Trademark is getting better, uh, but we have a lot of trademark problems still. Copyright is, is probably still the most difficult, but generally the trend line has been very, very good and that year by year we see this as fewer and fewer complaints. I should say that a good number of companies, however, are seeing upticks in counterfeit and Jay referred to this when he spoke about smaller retailers, onesies, twosies, being shipped out around the world. But for many companies, that's a really important issue, especially when safety and health are associated with it. I would also say that some of these IP problems have shifted. They haven't gone away. Certainly, we have problems with trade secrets, and that has always been the case and remains the case today. And then I would say a little bit more esoteric, but in, but important. And that is in mergers and acquisition approval. Sometimes there is pressure to uh, transfer technology. And I think that we see that mostly in the tech area. But it is uh, certainly clear, as Jay's experience shows, the Chinese technology is getting better and better and better and better. And I'm hearing from companies that they're importing technology from China, as well as exporting technology too. So this is every day becoming more of a two-way street. And Chinese innovation, especially in the South, especially in, in the Shanghai area, and especially where foreign interaction has been the most dense, 
we're seeing a huge amount of innovation and that requires Chinese government to protect that. And that protection is expanding overall to include foreign companies as well. So overall, it's a pretty good picture and getting better with special mention to counterfeit. Trademark is not quite there. And on the tech side, there are some additional issues that have not been fully addressed. It's interesting. I mean, I'm pivoting also to one of our audience questions relates to this, that, you know, both of you are describing, you know, really this trajectory that you've witnessed, you know, personally uh, and through your business and work where China is becoming much more advanced and it's, you know, legal protections, technology, Another area that the, this question I'm going to ask is about is about labor rates as well. So those have also been rising tremendously. And, you know, we started the, uh, this off with Jay getting involved in China because of the low prices. And, you know, you're still manufacturing a lot of products in China. Uh, however, the labor rates have gone up tremendously. Probably the cost to actually do that work has gone up a lot, but still you're working there. Can you say a little bit about maybe what some of the advantages still are such that it makes sense to, you know, work with China, even though the costs are rising tremendously? Right. So, you know, obviously labor one way or the other has been the, the catalyst for growth in, in the manufacturing of China and the relations in importing and exporting. Um, but the other is is innovation and resourcefulness. And so what we've been seeing as labor rates in the last 10 years have been increasing is, and, and actually labor shortages at some times and, and some points of, of the, of the calendar over the last 10 years. Uh, factories are getting more innovative in, in, uh, technology and innovation in supply chain and, and manufacturing. So we're seeing a lot of automation. They're, they're building special machines to make things. So for example, you know, one of my very good friends, uh, they have a company called Zuru and, you know, Zuru manufactures a bunch of balloons, you know, that thing where you, you, you know, you screw the balloons in, you can make a hundred water balloons in like a minute, um, you know, and, and, and some of the other things that they do and, and they're in there in China working very closely with the manufacturers and are actually uh, have their own factory and they're, they've created special machines that never existed before just to make through automation and, and very little labor, this process and and we have as well with some of our manufacturers for these little figurines that we do little squishy figurines i got one right here this is a little paw patrol figure so he's a little squishy and we mold them and we inject them with with a fluid and a water and they get painted and it used to take a lot of workers to make that and a lot of sophisticated handwork and now a lot of it's done through animation uh, automation and again when you have a system where capital is available for the manufacturers to invest in equipment, they're very eager to do it. And especially when labor's in short supply, because like anything else, number one, keep labor busy, keep labor happy with the right wages and keep people employed. Number two is keep revenue coming in to the country and to local municipalities. If you can't find labor, we still want production and productivity. So find a way to get it. The way to get it is through automation, the government and the, many of the banks will help you automate and help you create this equipment. So that's why China, for us anyway, even we're in light industrial where we still need labor and we still have handwork and it's not as sophisticated as making an iPhone, 
uh, we're able to still be competitive there, even though you have markets like India and Vietnam and, and Cambodia coming online, is because the Chinese manufacturers find ways to innovate and automate. And that's what helps keep that market viable for us. And my hope is uh, viable until I'm ready to retire, <laughs> you know, at least. And then, you know, where else everybody goes to make toys, I'm not too worried about it. But for the next 10 or so years, I still think China will continue to be a cost-effective place because they'll have that balance between labor and automation and ingenuity. I'd like to follow up a little bit about the, in some ways, conditions of the factories. You know, I know that, you know, there's sure. been some exposés about, you know, factory conditions in, in China. And so that's another area where at least the factories that I've visited seem to be also really upgrading a lot as far as the sort of amenities and other types of features to make life um you know, make a good life for the people that work there. And I'd li like to hear both about how you sort of ensure the the labor standards and environmental standards in your factories, uh, and then what you've witnessed as well as far as how conditions sure. in factories have evolved over time. Sure. You know, I can mostly speak for, and really only speak for my experience with toy factories I've worked with in the areas that I've worked in. I can't, and they, that's been places like Shenzhen, Guangdong, Shantou, Nanjing, Shanghai, and, and those areas. What's happening in other places, can't really comment. But what I can tell you is the evolution from South China to North China along the coast in the last 30, 35 years has been incredible. You know, when we first went to factories, um, you know, I, I have to be very honest with you, I never really saw young people. You know, I never saw you know, teenagers really working in the factories. Not it was it was mostly women in their twenties and thirties. Men ran the equipment. They were in their thirties and forties. Um, but the conditions were were pretty ripe and pretty raw in the early days. You know, lunchtime would come and somebody would bring a big kettle of stew or soup or something out into the courtyard, whether it was the summer or whether it was the winter. And each of the 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 staff had their own tin box. And they would fill up with some rice and fill up with some stew and they would go sit on, you know, curbs and, and wherever they could find a place to sit. And they'd eat their lunch, take a little break and go back to work. 30 years later, you know, the factories are like cities. Um, the, the, their diet is, is regulated as far as how many calories that, that they're required, uh, factories required to provide the workers. The, 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 the campuses, the, many of the factories are like campuses. Obviously, they've got their challenges. We've, we've heard the issues with Foxconn and some of those other places. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the level of sophistication and what the workers are provided for now has come such a long way from where it was at the beginning. And it's, it's really a little bit more a, a, a mix of a sort of a, a, a campus like environment as much as it's a factory because they're competitive. They have to be competitive. P people come from the countryside, younger people. They all have phones now. They know what's happening. They know what everybody has. And so from how many square feet a dorm room is to what the calorie intake is to having recreational opportunities, freedoms to move about, it's really evolved in a, in a, in a pretty incredible way. And of course, in our industry, uh, because we're dealing with many large corporations like Walmart and Target and Costco and Walgreens and 
big entertainment companies like Disney and Warner Brothers, they have standards that are much higher than, than typical. And we have something called ICTI, uh, ICTI, which is a, a certain standard, which again dictates how a factory uh, is laid out, it, it, the conditions, and lots of inspections. And, and that's for the benefit of the workers. And also we have very high standards that it relates to the, the safety of the toys. Because of the toy, if we, we want to be humanitarian on the one hand and know that our workers have, have good conditions and we don't need, you know, bad publicity as it relates to bad conditions. If that's the case, we don't want that. So we want the condition to be right. And the same thing with the quality of the toys. There was a big 10 or 12 or 15 maybe years ago with lead paint on toys. And it was a little bit overblown, but it really like woke up the industry and, and we recognized the damage that just a small issue with some lead paint on some Hot Wheels cars really had a knock on effect on our entire industry. So we put together with China, with US retailers and IP owners and, and, and the CPSC, really some pretty high standards to make sure toys manufactured in particular in China, as well as other places around the world are really safe and made in safe environments. Certainly you're going to see examples all over the world, even in the United States where factories aren't up to code and aren't doing it right. But if you walk into a Walmart or a Target, I can assure you that, that, the, that the merchandise in there is really made to a standard that would be very surprising to people because the, the effect of not living up to those standards is much more expensive and costly than it is to implement those. And and China is just as interested as well in 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 that well, I would say for the most part for sure. The the PR is it relates to that as well. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Craig, I'm wondering if you had any sort of reflections based on your experience with how sort of the factories in China have evolved over time and also how some of these standards have, have also evolved to to help regulate things. Well, I would definitely agree with Jay that there's been a very significant transformation over time and that the factories, certainly that American companies uh, procure from, are up to a, a very high standard. Supply chains are complex, however, and one is required by law to ensure that there is no forced labor within the supply chain. And this in Washington has become a, a very important issue. And I think it's an issue not only between that's bilateral, I think that there are very important implications globally. The Chinese and everyone else has agreed that forced labor should not be a part of uh, the global supply chain. And that's uh, embedded and enshrined in US law. And recently, some American companies have had some difficulties in inspecting their facilities, particularly in Xinjiang. And this has led to some concerns very broadly expressed. Just yesterday, the Secretary of State met with a number of Uyghur representatives. And I would expect that the Xinjiang Forced Labor Prevention Act will ultimately be passed. There are two versions, one in the House, one in the Senate. They're a little bit different, but they're both very strong to require American companies or the importer, need not be an American company, to prove that there's no forced labor in their supply chain, anywhere in their supply chain. 
We have encouraged the Chinese government to fully embrace ILO or International Labor Organization principles and then to allow inspections to confirm that uh, all factories in China, including those in Xinjiang, meet the ILO specifications that the Chinese government has signed up to. And that's something that is an important political issue right now, fully unresolved, but something that we all need to be careful about because proving that something did not happen right. can be comp complex. And there's been a lot of products that have been seized at the border, what is called a withhold release order, the customs withholds release on products which they suspect may have been made with forced labor. And it's up to the importer to prove that it has not been. And this is creating a, a great deal of uh, interest in compliance and uh, really getting to know one's supply chains very, very closely and ensuring that those supply chains don't come from Xinjiang and particularly some of the companies that have been implicated in forced labor. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. And I'll be curious to see how these bill or this, the eventual sort of bill ends up proceeding. And I mean, I think you really highlight that this is this becomes not just a business to business, but a government to government uh, relations, because, you know, if importers into the U.S. need to prove that there is no forced labor, you know, that requires, uh, I mean, like you said, sort of a variety of inspections and systems in place, which I think will, you know, obviously that's probably beyond what, you know, private companies will do, but there'll need to be some sort of government intervention. So that, that will be very interesting to watch and certainly will have an effect um, on, on U.S. producers without a doubt. Well, greater transparency by the Chinese government allowing labor inspections to take place uh, in all facilities that touch the international supply chain, I think is a, is a reasonable request. And I hope that the Chinese government will get there over time. I'd like to talk a little bit as well, uh, Jay, about how you organize your business. You mentioned that you know you have fa factories and work with fa or factories in a variety of different areas. I think your your headquarters, regional headquarters, is in Hong Kong. Can you say a little bit about why that is a useful location for you, and then potentially also any changes that might occur given some of the governance changes in Hong Kong? Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, really, Hong Kong, you know, was uh, a place where I first started entering China. Early in my career, when I started really my first trip going overseas to Asian import, I worked for the first couple of years in Korea. And at the time, South Korea and China had no relations. So if you wanted to get into China from South Korea, you had to go down to Hong Kong <laughs> and fly back up into China. So that's how I started first getting my, uh, you know, experience in with China, with, with, with Hong Kong. And then as my business experience evolved and I got involved with different companies, I started to work for companies that had home offices in Hong Kong. Their Asia base was Hong Kong. Obviously at the time it was a, a different kind of, you know, system, the financial system and the governance and all that. So it was a really easy place for international folks to operate. And so we use that as the hub to get in and out of China. And, and, you know, I can't speak for the last year and a half, almost two years. I haven't been, you know, into Hong Kong or China since January of last year, but it still remains a, a, an easy in and out hub access point to China, whether it's flying to each individual city, taking a train over the border or even driving over the border. 
And for us, we just have a very experienced team of people in Hong Kong that operate our business. We do have contractors all over China that that we employ as subcontractors that do inspections for us and production of planning. And again, you know, for us, our great relationships with our vendor partners, our loyal, you know, multi-year relationships enable us also to lean on the Chinese manufacturers and some of their uh, organizational infrastructure. So we don't need quite as much of a team all over China. A lot of companies in, in the light industrial business have, have opened up over the years offices either in Shenzhen or Guangzhou, Guangdong, and then also up in the Shanghai region. We really haven't done that. We've still kept our hub. And, you know, of course, Hong Kong now is really much more a part of China than it ever was and, and certainly will continue to be. So we don't really expect there to be much of a, a disruption. For us, it's just continuity. Personally, for myself, my, my wife is from Hong Kong. My mother-in-law lives in Hong Kong. I have lots of friends in, in, in Hong Kong. So it's a little bit of an easier place for me to kind of base out of. I, I typically spend anywhere from two to three months a year in Hong Kong as my hub and then going back and forth up into China uh, from there. So Hong Kong has just been a very comfortable place uh, for me to operate in. And that's why I continue to do it. But as we grow and expand, you know, we'll definitely be looking at opening up offices in other parts of China uh, as our business gets gets larger because that, you know, makes a lot of sense. But, you know, Hong Kong has just been a, a great hub for us and we, we think it will continue to be. Great. Very interesting. We're, we're, we have about five minutes left. And for the last section of questions, for me at least, I'd like to discuss a little bit about the trade war so I understand, Jay, that the toy industry was exempt from the tariffs, which, you know, was probably a good thing for, for, for your industry. I'd love to hear about sure. that, how that ended up becoming exempt. And then even if there's not any tariffs on your products, has the trade war affected you in any way? You know, I, I think. You know, certainly the un volatility and uncertainty. And with the previous administration, obviously, there was a lot of volatility and uncertainty just because of the rhetoric and the style of, of, of politicking. For us, it was obviously 2019 was a really stressful period because it was like, you know, looming. The tariffs were looming. You know, I live in South Florida and we have hurricanes. You know, we can see them coming 10, 15 days away and they get closer and closer. And are they going to hit you or they're not going to hit you? And that's really what the tariffs felt like. You know, they were coming in just here was the aluminum and then steel and then, you know, clothing and apparel and and what was going to be next. And we kept skirting it. And one of the ways we kept skirting it is because we we did some old fashioned PR. You know, we, we, we cast tariffs as a tax on the, on the consumer, uh, which in some things you can't really see, like in aluminum. Uh, but in toys, you can. And we cast it as if you put tariffs on toys, price of toys are going to go up. Don't be the Grinch who stole Christmas. Don't make toy prices go up, you know, two months before Christmas. Don't put tariffs on toys. And we were lucky that message resonated with the administration and they, kept pushing out toys in and, and other things like cell phones and and, and uh, laptop computers into the last category and then when they did the, the 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 phase one trade deal those products that had not had tariffs implemented on them became exempt or remained exempt and they never came on but it was really you know frustrating and looming and I would just say you know quickly the overall volatility this is a more 
as volatile period in the last two years or three years, not just the last administration, but this administration, in my 35 plus years of dealing, doing business with China, even X, the, you know, the early incident in 89 in June with Tiananmen. Um, we've had upheavals. We've been dealing, you, you talk about tariffs, you know, there used to be duties on toys and most favored nation. And we got through that. We got through port strikes and we got through labor challenges. And even with COVID, we got through, you know, the factory lockdowns. But the uncertainty now uh, that's happening, the geopolitical and economic is really as challenging and as volatile as ever. Our hope is that the Chinese, while always tough, are always smart. And the U.S. is always practical and, and, and generally all, also smart. And we recognize, at least from business, how our symbiotic our relationship is and how detrimental it would be to both countries to allow some of the geopolitical hot button points, which have been around for a hundred years, interrupt an incredibly successful and symbiotic economic relationship that's so important to both parties. It's 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 uh, challenging and interesting. Yeah, Craig. Uh, in our last few minutes, I'd love to hear your reflections on this as well. I think you know, even in the last you know number of days with. President Xi's speech on the centenary, you know, continued crackdown on um, tech companies like, you know, DD, uh, for instance, just recently. You know, what's your sense about this this volatile environment? Is this something that will continue for a while? Or like, you know, Jay mentioned, we had, you know, Tiananmen in 1989 and then easily by the early 1990, things were sort of in the commercial realm, you know, pretty close back, you know, back to normal. I'm, I'd you know, love to hear what your th thoughts are, you know, as we look out six months, a year, how volatile this relationship will continue to be. Well, I, I wish I knew the answer to that question. Um, the uh, Biden administration is uh, conducting a top to bottom review, and they're going to come out with a China strategy at some point. But at least thus far, not a hair on the head of the, the Trump administration's trade policies towards China have been touched. There has been no changes whatsoever. And in a way, that's surprising. I had expected, Jay has referred a couple of times to the steel and aluminum tariffs to uh, have uh, gone away, but they haven't. And I think that uh, tr this, in this political environment, trade liberalization is very challenging and that the USTR, Catherine Tai, is looking at this very deliberately, but looking at it oftentimes from the lens of labor rights uh, and environmental rights. And, and thus, at least for me, I think that we're in a, a period of stasis right now. And I would expect announcements to be made uh, around November. The action forcing event uh, will be APEC meetings, uh, November 13. And at that point, President Biden has to articulate a positive economic policy. And I will be very curious as to what that uh, will be towards Asia. And so this is under review now. Certainly by November 13th, uh, the review has got to be over and the administration has to put its flag down as to what are our economic policies with regard to Asia? Uh, are we going to continue integration and under what form? And a large part of that will be determined by our relationship with China. But they are, they are related, but different. And so it'll come together on November 13th when President Biden talks to 
the APEC uh, community about U.S. policy. Uh, until that time, uh, let's hope for the best. Great. Well, I always tell my students that having deadlines is a really positive thing, and it sort of is something that I think will will be very important to see how the relationship continues to develop in many different realms, most importantly for our uh, listeners today, commercial realm. So uh, we're actually at time, so I just want to thank you very, very much, Jay, Craig, for coming on China Corner Office, and thank you to all of our listeners for joining us as well. Thank Pleasure. you. Thank you.